As a business continuity or crisis management professional, it's important for us to understand the human side of a disruptive event. And if we have insights into the best way to help employees after a trauma, we're one step ahead of the game. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 35 of the Resilient Journey podcast, sponsored by ClearRisk. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and today I'm joined by Jody Copeland, a registered psychotherapist. Listen as Jody tells us what employers should do to support employees post-trauma. She talks about the effects of an unsupported employee, and Jody encourages employers to get curious about their employees after a traumatic event. And if you're struggling with something you just can't shake, Jody has some advice for you too. We'll get into this and more right after this from my friends at ClearRisk. Navigating changes in the risk landscape can be daunting without access to the right tools. ClearRisk's centralized risk management solution streamlines the process of data collection and analysis, helping customers make impactful decisions and focus on big picture initiatives. ClearRisk provides a highly configurable, easy to use solution that gives our customers the confidence to inform decision-making and proactively optimize risk in their organizations. Effective risk management begins with data you can trust. Learn more at clearrisk.com. Jody, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to have you here. Uh, before we get started, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Okay, thanks for having me, Mark. So my name is Jody Copeland. I'm a registered psychotherapist. I work in private practice, and I've done so for approximately 10 years. I, um, myself and, um, and a friend of mine opened it up, and it's been going really great ever since. Well, that's great. And uh, on last week's episode, we talked um, with someone who had experienced uh, childhood trauma and uh, focused on the personal resilience side of things. Today, I'd like to try to focus a little bit more on the employer's side of things. So if we were to think on behalf of an employer following a workplace trauma, and just the level set on that, I mean, whether it's a widespread impact like uh, an active shooter situation or trauma that is specific to just, you know, maybe one employee, what steps should an employer take to give the employees every opportunity to respond to that effectively? Okay, so that is a great question. Um, being on the side of the treatment part of that, I often see, um, I think probably the majority of the time, I see employers who maybe they want to support their employees, but they're a little bit they're unsure about, you know, how do we do that? and so the first step, especially if it involves something, you know, really um, traumatic as the example you gave, it's really about linking that person up with resources as quickly as possible. So getting that person connected um, to somebody that they can talk to, preferably somebody who has a little bit of expertise in how do you manage, um, you know, crisis response. So I do a therapy called EMDR therapy, and it stands for eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing therapy, and it's used in the treatment of trauma. And EMDR therapists, um, there's a group of them that are actually 
actually trained to respond to crisis situations, so natural disasters in the world, um, things of that nature, or if something, you know, terrible happens at work, they would they would actually go and they would help um, with recent event protocol. They would help those employees kind of manage through in the moment. And then they would also help those employees set up, okay, let's make a plan or a roadmap for what's going to happen um, moving forward. How do we connect you with resources that you may need over a longer period of time? But first and foremost, it really is the most important part is just saying, how do we get these employees connected with someone immediately so that they are not um, left to kind of feel isolated or use maladaptive coping strategies that they're they're starting the process of healing immediately. That's kind of the most important thing. Now, a lot of the organizations that I've worked with um, refer to EAPs, right? Em- employee assistance programs. Is that what you're describing here? Um, so, yes, that EAPs can be um, a good kind of first response. They're typically fairly, um, that's kind of brief therapy. They're not necessarily trained in um, like a disaster trauma response. So it's a little bit different. I would say it's definitely better than nothing, but it's probably not the best um, thing that you could be providing for employees. So another way to say that is EAPs maybe are just a little bit too generic, don't really have that that trauma training. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly right, Mark. So so EAPs, they, they are generally trained in, yeah, just kind of like, you know, things like mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy, therapies that are really great and effective. But when you're talking about somebody who has, has just dealt with um, a trauma, like, mm-hmm you know, um, shooter in the workplace, they need very specific types of therapy. They need a therapist who understands that, you know, the most important thing is that you're going to help that person feel safe in the moment. So you're going to maybe be using grounding strategies. You're going to, um, you're maybe going to get them seen by a doctor sooner than later so that they can potentially use medication that might be helpful in that moment, um, mm-hmm. that you're really using like specific crisis intervention tools at that time. A term that gets thrown around a lot is PTSD. Are all sort of post-trauma reactions classified as PTSD or is that sort of an overgeneralization? Um, it's a, it can be an overgeneralization. So the short answer to that is no. Um, you know, I, it, there's so many different variables and factors that go into um, PTSD diagnosis. So I could have, you know, something terrible happen, like a car accident, and feel, um, you know, I might feel a little bit hypervigilant driving again. I might have some nightmares. I might feel, um, you know, just a little bit anxious. But that does not necessarily mean that I have. PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, PTSD is typically diagnosed by a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and they use a whole bunch of different um, criteria that's outlined in the, the DSM, and they kind of go through with some 
pretty comprehensive assessments to say, you know, it, is it looking like this person has PTSD and there's like a whole bunch of qualifying factors to determine that. Um, so you can definitely experience the symptoms. I think most people throughout a lifetime would say that they, they've experienced some PTSD symptoms, but you don't necessarily have PTSD. And just because you might not have PTSD doesn't mean you don't need to, to get some help. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, you know, we can use trauma um, therapy, whether you have a diagnosis of PTSD or not. Okay. So when we think about an employer and they're providing these types of services, uh, it's got to be a little bit difficult, right? Because you could have two people go through the same event. And they respond to that event differently. They might have different levels of coping capabilities or whatever. So how do you take that into consideration when you start to think about providing these types of services? Um, well, that's you know another great question. So I, I feel that it's really important for employers to be able to look at each person individually because you're absolutely right. It really is, um, it really is a case-by-case um, scenario where, you know, so we've seen this a lot actually in, um, in crime scenarios where they'll have, say, you know, 10 witnesses see something and they'll ask each person, well, what did you see? Right. And everyone has a completely different story. Some are similar, but a lot of differences in what they witness. And so a lot of what we experience is really based on our perception. It's based on our perception. It's based on our previous experiences. And so something that happens um, that is upsetting or traumatic in the workplace, there may be people who really are managing that quite well. So they may have very high resiliency levels. They may have really high self-care levels where they have a lot of support. And they can kind of you know, sail through that fairly smoothly, where other people, I mean, that might turn into PTSD. So for the employer, the, the most important thing is just really being able to um, get curious about each employee and being able to have open dialogue about what was this experience like for you that's completely free of judgment, um, where you can just hear somebody um, if they are saying, yeah, this really was upsetting for me. And so then you can look at it from a constructive perspective to say, we're here to support you. And what do you think is going to be helpful to move you through this? Um, what can you do to support you in that? And so that you're really, you're really believing and taking what they're saying as that is their experience. One of the things I know is important to you just from having conversations with you in, in preparation for this is providing support to the employees if the employer doesn't step up. I know that that's important to you, isn't it? You want to talk about that? Oh, yeah, it's it's so important um, because what we've seen as trauma therapists is we've so often seen, as particularly with first responders, we've seen people experience terrible um, you know, terrible events at work. And and then um, what happens on top of that, which we kind of consider a re-injury, 
is um, what we call sanctuary trauma. So that's where this person has had, you know, I can think of some, well, well many different cases um, with paramedics and they're dealing with just, you know, things that would be horrible. And then their employer is just kind of like, well, you know, you got to get back out there. And so yeah. now not only are they, they have the original trauma to manage, but they feel unsafe and unsupported by their employer. And so it just creates this real compounding effect for the individual. And it really more often than not brings them to a place of burnout. And it becomes very difficult for them to ever return back to work because how can you return back to work if you don't really trust the people that are, you know, supposed to be keeping you supported and safe. Right. Um, so it, it really kind of, it's difficult for me because I feel like that is just such an unavoidable um, occurrence where if the employer is just to really help support that person and it can be, um, with very small gestures, you know, just checking in with them, having a, a non-judgmental ear to really listen and really be paying attention to what is this person going through right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it really would make all the difference in the world. I, I like that. Now, this next question, I'm going to admit it might be naive. And so I give you permission to, to push back on that if it is. I'm wondering if you're seeing even an unspoken stigma that might prevent men from stepping up and asking for help. So no, that is not a naive question. I, I actually think that's a really great question. Um, and the answer is yes. Um, there definitely is, um, is and has been a stigma, I think, for men. Thankfully, I do feel that in my time doing this job, I have seen a lot of great significant differences. Um, we are getting more more and more men coming in and more and more men kind of feeling a different level of comfort, which is great. Yeah. Um, I can tell you one quick kind of personal story um, that speaks to that. My my husband is a police officer and he's been on the force for quite a while. And so in the last probably three to five years, there has been a huge influx of young officers. So officers, you know, I would say probably 27 years old and younger. And so he was working um, on a platoon where a lot of, he was working with a lot of these younger guys. And he started noticing after they would go to a call, you know, these guys would call each other and they would call him and they would say, Hey, Hey, are you good? Like, do you want to chat? Um, do you want to meet, you know, window to window and like kind of debrief some of that. And he said, he did do that a few times and it was really nice. And it was such a change because, you know, five, 10 years prior to that, it would be more about, Let's go out for a beer after shift and stare at a TV screen. Yeah. So there really is a lot of movement and awareness. Um, and I, I'm seeing it as well. Like I have more uh, male clientele coming in, which is really, really good. Um, I think there have been a lot of positive changes in that regard. But 
historically, you know, we definitely, um, I think men were conditioned to feel I can't show emotion or I'm not supposed to talk about that. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's really unfortunate because showing emotion is strength, right? Not, not weakness. Uh, that's what I've always felt. But the lesson that we can take from that and from your, from your husband and from the police officer uh, example, and we can bring that into the, the corporate setting too, and, and that's in um, a situation after a trauma, it's good to have that peer support. So I really like that. I'm really glad that uh, you injected that story. Now, what about by profession? Are there certain professions that are more apt to ask for help? You talked about first responders and things like that um, versus other professions where they might just be a little bit more closed off to, to seeking that support. Yeah. So I, I think that um, some professions that involve uh, maybe a certain level of bravado. So we definitely do see that in policing where policing is, is still male dominated. And, um, and so I think, they may be a little less likely to come in because there is um, sort of like some association with, well, if I have to talk about this, that means that, you know, is someone going to judge me like I can't do my job adequately? Mm. I think any type of position, um, certainly probably in the corporate world as well, like where you you have to really perform, right? So then if you're having to talk about some of the things you're experiencing, would, would people make assumptions, oh, well, you're not going to be able to perform um, in the same way if you're feeling anxiety or you're feeling some symptoms of depression? How is that going to affect your job performance if you're working in a really competitive um, right. workplace? You know, I think there are those things that get in people's minds a little bit. What happens if my employer finds out about this? Will they will they see that as a weakness? When what it actually is is, you know, a lot of the time you are growing, developing insight and awareness, which I feel translates into the work as a really positive thing. So I I was it's interesting because I asked the question thinking about it across different professions. Uh, I'm going to change it now and, and just have you respond to this, uh, thinking about moving up sort of the, the corporate ladder a little bit. If there's an executive that's listening, they might put themselves in the situation you just described. No, I can't go talk to HR or I can't go talk to someone about this. I'm a leader of this organization and I'll be seen as weak. You talked about it earlier, but I'm going to get you to reiterate it here leadership is saying, I need help. Leadership in my um, experience and my opinion is being able to say, I am a human being. Mm -hmm. So none of us are exempt from the human condition, no matter how uh, good we are at our jobs, no matter how much we excel, no matter how intelligent or skilled we are, we're still human beings first and foremost, which means that we have the human condition, right? We are made up of, um, we're made up of a cognitive mind and an emotional mind, mm-hmm. and we can't be exempt. So the quicker that you come to really understand that and say, 
you know, I am a person who is willing to be authentic and vulnerable and gain insights into both my strengths and my weaknesses. Um, and that is really what getting help or therapy does. It's developing a greater relationship with yourself. And if you have that strong relationship and understanding about who you are, then, I mean, my my thought is that who, how could you not be a great leader? Right. No, that's good. Thank you for, for adding that in. That's actually a good jumping off point. We've been talking about the employer up until now. Now, I want to talk about the employees. We've talked a little bit about people maybe not being as willing to to step up and say, hey, I, I need some help here. But what are some telling signs that people just shouldn't ignore here and say, you know what, it's time for me to say I need help? Uh, I, I guess it probably varies from person to person, but there have to be some standard signs, don't there, that you know mm-hmm. could be triggers for people? Absolutely. So, so what you always want to kind of start out with is looking at your baseline so you you kind of do an assessment to say okay so how much do i generally sleep a night you know so i'm personally not the greatest sleeper like i'll have nights where sometimes i get six hours sometimes i get less sometimes i'm good i get eight but that's sort of my baseline that's my norm um, so if I went from there to all of a sudden I'm noticing, you know, I'm, oh, I'm really, I'm not getting a lot more than three or four hours a night and I'm finding it very difficult to get to sleep. Um, other examples such as, oh, I, you know, I haven't eaten all day and I didn't even notice, um, things wow. like, oh, I noticed that things I would typically feel, um, you know, not, not too irritable, irritable about are really creating a, a high level of frustration for me. And I'm, I'm kind of lashing out in a way that I, I wouldn't normally speak that way. So anything where, you know, you, you're looking at what is normal for me? What's my, what's my baseline? What's my norm? And you're seeing fairly dramatic shifts in that. Mm-hmm. is where you want to really assess, okay, is there something that is maybe going on for me? And it usually starts with our basic needs uh, become affected, our sleep, um, our, our eating habits, um, exercise, like whether you're, you're, do, you're not doing it at all or maybe you're doing it way too much, like anything that where you're, the things that you typically do to manage and thrive and function are kind of dramatically changing. And that's one way or another. I mean, use the example of not being able to sleep or, or if you just want to sleep all the time, that would also. Absolutely. That's yeah. a great point, Mark. Like if, you know, if I was, so I'm a morning person and if I found myself not wanting to get up or I'm getting up, at, you know, in the afternoon, that would be a real signal to me that something is maybe off that I need to look at. But there's no real timetable post-trauma. I mean, some people might know the day after or just a few days after that, man, that really messed me up. Some people might carry that for a long time, right? Absolutely. So um, what we often see that people are often surprised by is um, particularly with things like, so I know we're talking a little bit more about um, things that happen in adulthood, like in the workplace. 
Mm-hmm. But um, the things that happen in childhood can can be carried with people for decades, and they don't really notice it until you know maybe something really awful happens in their adulthood, and now all that old stuff kind of comes to the surface, and they're dealing with things that they thought were not even there. So, you know, that can certainly happen within the mind because what we naturally do with anything that's unpleasant is we want to try to avoid it, right? The, the brain will kind of say, I don't want to, have to deal with this. It's really uncomfortable. And so the, the brain will say, let's put this, let's bury this guy in somewhere and, um, and just get on with things. And, you know, sometimes you can do that for a certain period of time. And that really does vary for everyone. Now, you wouldn't have had a chance to, to hear this yet, but my guest from last week, uh, that's the exact uh, thing that happened. Uh, she had this uh, uh, childhood uh, trauma, uh, and it wasn't until she was in her mid-40s that it, you know, it just all, as she described it, the perfect storm hit. And so, I mean, the timing, you just never know what the timing is going to be. Um, mm-hmm. And you also don't necessarily know what the trigger might be, right? I mean, um, mm-hmm. are, are there certain things that are more likely to trigger uh, a previous trauma? Um, there are, but it doesn't always seem like those things are related. And that's um, usually fairly interesting for people in my field. Like part of what we do is, is we try to sort of figure that out. Why are these things linked? Um, and it usually has to do with some kind of association that the, the, the mind that has been made within those neural pathways. So it could be something that is like, you know, a familiar sound or a familiar smell or um, some feeling like uh, that doesn't seem like a major thing. So, for example, if someone has childhood abandonment issues and then they get let go at work mm. and that could trigger like all kinds of upset for them. And they may say, like, why am I so upset about this? You know, yeah. it's not really that big of a deal, but it's because it's triggering that unresolved um, emotion from the past. I'm going to give you a chance here to, to give some advice to somebody who might be listening and maybe they're struggling with something. And you know how these things are. Sometimes you're struggling with something, you're not ready to admit it yet, or it's just sort of hanging in the background there and you feel like something's not quite right, but you haven't been able to put your finger on it yet. What advice would you give to someone who is struggling with something right now? My advice would be to start talking, start talking to whoever it is that you can. Um, Obviously I have a bit of a bias, so I'm going to (laughs) say talking to a therapist might be um, talking to a professional might be a good idea but not necessarily. It really is just to start being able to communicate. So whatever it is that you're kind of hesitant about or you're keeping inside, we do that for lots of reasons. It's difficult to allow ourselves to feel vulnerable. And there might be some shame associated with it, making it even more difficult. But the process of starting to talk allows us to start to let go of some of that shame that we're carrying. It starts the exploration phase of someone else kind of maybe asking some questions that are going to trigger 
insight and it could be a friend it could be family member it could be your family doctor um it's just to be able to i'm going to start opening up about this and typically when people do start to talk then you know it's sometimes a little bit of a cascade where they will they'll talk to some friends they'll talk to the doctor their doctor might say you know maybe talking to a therapist might be a good idea but it's just that it's just that that beginning stage, you know, start talking about it. All right, Jody, I'll get you out of here on this. If people want to learn more about you or to reach out in any way, what's the best way to connect? Um, so you can connect with me um, probably right now through my email would be best. Um, and then I also have a website. What I can do is I'll put the links to those in the show notes uh, on the podcast okay. and people will see it there. That's great. Okay, great. Hey, Jody, the time flew by here. Um, it sure did. Um, it was a pleasure having you here. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much, Mark. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Special thanks to my guest today, Jody Copeland. We've been focused on mental health the last couple of episodes, and I want to encourage you. If you're carrying a weight that you never asked to carry, and it's becoming something you just can't bear, please reach out and talk to someone. That first step is the hardest, but you'll be glad you took it. Thanks to Clear Risk for their continued support of the resilient journey. We have more to come next week, so join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.